so glad to see all of you. I want to welcome those of you uh, who are online, and I know it's not really a shocker to hear a pastor say that I'm glad that people showed up to gather with the church for our worship service. But this is a weekend that we are kicking off a brand new uh, message series through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And believe it or not, this is something I've been looking forward to, praying about, uh, preparing for, for about a year, and it's finally here. And today is the day that I get to begin sharing with you the things that have encouraged me. And it's my hope that as I share the things that have encouraged me, that it's encouraging for you. And that's something we all need, isn't it? Or whether you are someone who'd say, Rick, I'm not, I'm not terribly religious. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out the whole Jesus thing, trying to figure out you Christians. And, and then some folks might say, no, I'm a devoted follower of Jesus. And then there are people who are somewhere in between. Whichever one of those things describes you, isn't it true that every single one of us, sometimes we could benefit from a transfusion of courage from somebody else to us to help us stand and face a difficult thing that's in front of us? Of course it is. It's something everybody needs. And because it's such a common human experience, it prompts me to ask you this question. What are the things that knock you off your feet? What are the situations, what are the circumstances in life in which you need courage? What are the things that cause you to maybe shrink back? And you don't have to answer out loud. This is just a chance for us to get honest with ourselves. What are the things that cause your knees to buckle? What are the things that cause you to say, I don't know if I can face this. I don't know if I can keep going. This is impossible. What are the things that cause you, maybe out of fear, anxiety, or whatever, it causes you to self-medicate in such a way that you know it's not good for you? What is it that causes you to, to think to yourself, I don't think faith is enough. I need, a, I, I, I need more than that right now. What are the things because of fear, anxiety, or whatever, they nudge you into being a version of yourself that you don't even like? Now, you're with me. Every single one of us, regardless of your background, we're gonna face situations in our life that feel like they're gonna knock us off our feet. And whether you are a religious person or, or an irreligious person or somewhere in between, there is an irony here that we could probably write books about. There are things that knock irreligious people off their feet and sometimes that creates in them a kind of jealousy for the faith that religious people have. And then sometimes religious people can get knocked off their feet and that can cause them to doubt the faith that they have. But whatever it is and whatever your background and however you're approaching life today, this is for every single one of us. Recently, I had the privilege to visit an older gentleman from our church. He was in the hospital. Uh, he's facing a very serious health concern, health crisis. And as I sat next to his bedside, I was just drawn in by his steady faith. As I sat there and we talked, he raised his hands in the air and he said, would you tell the people at church who are praying for me to remember that God is the one who's responsible for us? And this fragile man had courage from a faith that was anything but fragile. And for you, maybe that's hard to hear because for you, the thing that would knock you off your feet is a health crisis or even facing death. And maybe for you, the thing that would knock you off your feet is something altogether different. But as we begin our study of the book of 1 Peter, it offers a transfusion of courage to you and to me. And we call it a book, but really it's not a book. It's a, it was a letter. It was a letter written by a guy named Peter who knew Jesus personally, who became an apostle of Jesus, and he wrote this letter to local churches. And I'm curious, how many, who writes letters anymore? Does anybody write letters? 
Do, like, do young couples who love each other, do they write letters like some of us used to? Like, there's nothing wrong with getting a snap from your boo, but nothing, I mean, nothing beats that old school letter, especially when you love somebody, right? And what do you do when you get that letter? You open up, you might smell it. But where do you start? You start at the top. Believe it or not, in ancient letters, the, the real personal stuff often came at the very end. In ancient letters, uh, the, the, the personal greeting and, and information that was designed to shape how you read all the content of the letter came at the very end. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start at the end of Peter's letter. We're going to start two sentences from the very end. He writes this, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you, testifying that this is the truth, grace of God, so that we'll what? Stand fast in it. This letter was written so that we would be encouraged with the true grace of God so that we can stand fast. Everybody in life, everybody in life wants a foundation for their life that they can count on, that they can stand firm on. And I think I'm old enough now, I think I had just enough gray hair in my beard I can get away with saying this. Everybody wants these three things in life. There are three things in life that everybody wants. It's significance, security, and satisfaction. Now, it may not be true that everybody gets them, but everybody wants these three things. And when we talk about significance, we're talking about the thing that makes your life worth living. What is it that gives you value? We're talking about the source of our self-worth. We talk about security. We're talking about the thing that makes us safe. That, that our significance, the thing that gives us value, it's protected. And we talk about satisfaction, we're not just talking about having a good time, we're talking about being fulfilled. We're talking about not being plagued by that sense that something's missing or I've missed out on what life truly is. And together, these three things give us a sense of self-worth that is protected and whatever we had to do to get it, it was all worthwhile. Significance, security, and satisfaction. So let me ask you, where do you look? What are you counting on to give you these three things? If you were to read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you're gonna see a recurring theme, and that recurring theme is called idolatry or idols. And believe it or not, every time that concept is raised, it's always referencing these things right here. And we can define idols or idolatry as this, anything other than Jesus that we look to for significance, security, and satisfaction. You know what that means? Somebody could be totally irreligious, but they could have an idol. Someone could be a follower of Jesus and have idols. Did you know that? Did you know that it's possible for followers of Jesus to try to use God to serve the deep down idols of our hearts? It's important to remember what Peter said exactly. I'm gonna put it back on the screen. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying. He could have said, this is the grace of God, but he didn't, did he? He said, this is the true grace of God. This isn't filler. This isn't fluff. This is intentional. Why, why is this word important? I think Peter knew this. We are all vulnerable to looking for encouragement in a false version of grace. We're all vulnerable to looking for encouragement and a false version of grace. And this is, the message, this is the point of the message. This is where I'm just gonna ask you to really listen with energy and effort. 
This is the point in, in, the, in the morning and the message where, where communication is going to require effort from, from both of us. Here it is. It is possible to try and use God. It is possible to use prayer, to use faith, to use religious activity, to try to get from God the things that we believe will make us significant, secure, and satisfied. And when we do that, we are not standing fast in the truth. And we've actually reduced God to a kind of valet for our idols. Here's a biblical perspective. When we trust in Jesus, when we know him, he is our significance. He is our security. He is our satisfaction. And this false version of grace, it's sneaky and it's subtle. And this false version is trying to use God to get from God things that we think will make us okay. And so for you, if it's health, if that's the thing that makes you feel secure and and that your life is going okay and that you have all that you need, the vulnerability is to try to use God and religious activity to get that from God. If the go-to thing for you is marriage or relationship status, if that's what makes you feel significant and okay, the vulnerability is to try to use God to get that. If it's financial success or career success, if that's where your significance comes from, your value, your security, your satisfaction in life, the vulnerability is to try to use God and religious activity and religious performance to try and get that from God. If it's other people admiring you, approving of you, the vulnerability is to try to use God and religious activity to get that from God. And this is, you gotta listen close here. When we use God as a means to an end to get from him, the things that we think are going to make us okay. And then God doesn't give us those things because he is not in the business of serving our idols. That's when we hear people say things like, faith didn't work for me. Christianity didn't work for me. We shouldn't expect something that's false to work for us. Encouragement comes from knowing the truth and standing firm on the truth and standing fast in it. And when we know it, it gives us the courage we need to stand firm and to stand fast, even when standing isn't easy. So now we're ready. Now we're ready to turn our attention to the beginning of this letter and to begin our journey in exploring what the true grace of God is. So we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth and to a living hope. We just sang about that and to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As we just read through that together, I'm curious what stood out to you. Obviously, I highlighted some words, and the words that I highlighted, they had to do with significance, security, and satisfaction that we have in Christ. And this letter, one of the things we're going to see over these coming weeks is that Peter wrote it 
to followers of Jesus, men and women who were facing very difficult, even scary circumstances. And his response was, remember who you are. All throughout the letter, remember who you are. Remember your identity in Christ. And what did he say to us? Even when you feel like an outsider, like an exile, when you feel like you don't fit in and you don't belong, you are the elect of God. You're the chosen of God. The Holy Spirit of God is in you, doing sanctifying work, growing you to be more like Jesus. And we have a living hope. And that's just another way of saying the exact same thing that we learned from the Apostle Paul in our last series called This is Church when we were looking at the New Testament letter of Ephesians, that the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and me when we believe in Jesus. We have a hope that is alive, and that hope is unstoppable. And we have an inheritance that can never, ever be taken away from us. And we'll remember that. When we remember that, we have the courage we need to stand up and to stand fast, even when standing isn't easy. When I was a teenager um, and my social circle was getting bigger and I could leave the house you know, without my parents tagging along, uh, I had a dad who would say the same thing every time before I walked out the door. I don't know if anybody had a parent like that. Super predictable, sometimes annoying, but it stuck with me. Every time I get ready to leave, my dad would say this, Rick, remember who you are and what you are. And whether he realized it or not, my dad's parenting philosophy was very biblical. What he was trying to say, Rick, there's going to be situations where you're going to need some courage to do the right thing. And you're going to need to know what the right thing is and you might be confused. And the courage you need and the clarity you need comes from remembering your identity. The courage you need, the clarity you need comes from remembering your identity in Jesus. And so there's going to be a verse that comes up over and over and over again throughout this series. Uh, I wanna challenge you to memorize this verse, all right? And if you're saying, Rick, I don't do memory, I'm not good at memory, I want you to try anyway, and here's why. You can only be encouraged by what you remember. I haven't yet figured out how to be encouraged by what I forget, so we're gonna try this together. First Peter chapter two, verse nine, he says, but you are, what is this about? Your identity. If you have trusted in Christ, this is what is true of you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Can we do something? Can we say this out loud together? I'm gonna try and give us a good pace. Here we go, one, two, three. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Awesome. Marinate in that. Meditate on that. Your significance, your security, your satisfaction, it is accomplished for you by Jesus. It is insured for you. It is guaranteed for you by Jesus. What is it? What is it that threatens to knock you off your feet? What's the thing that goes on in your life that causes you to need courage? Would you remember who you are? Would you remember who you are in Christ? We're talking about identity. This is how our church is committed to talk about identity I find joy in defining myself by what Jesus did, not what I do. It's about what he did for me, not what I do. And so I have to ask myself this question. What's the story I'm telling myself about myself? 
What is the story that you're telling yourself about yourself? And this is important. Peter wrote this letter to men and women and local churches who were facing very difficult circumstances. They felt like outsiders. They, many of them lived in communities that were hostile to their faith. They faced a wide range of injustices. That if I had to face that, if you had to face it, we probably feel like our knees would buckle, like we were knocked off our feet. And over and over again, Peter's refrain is, remember who you are, remember your identity in Jesus, because it's going to give you the courage and the clarity you need to stand. And in this series, it's going to be extremely practical. We're going to have some real talk over the course of this series. But before we can get to that, we got to reckon with who we are. we got to reckon with our identity. we got to reckon with the story we're telling ourselves about ourselves. And so this is going to be our series thesis. We're going to repeat this each week, and we're going to keep drawing out the implications of it each week. Let your identity drive your activity. Let who you are determine what you do, not the other way around. And too often we run into problems because we focus on behavior first. Focusing on behavior first is not the gospel. We have to be gospel fluent it's our responsibility to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've got to know the gospel. It doesn't begin with our behavior. The gospel begins with who are we in Jesus? And we do have a God-given purpose. And that God-given purpose flows out of our God-given identity. We've got to remember this first. And so to do that, we're going to dive in to what we've read from Peter. In verse 1, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Whenever you read um, elect or you read you're God's elect or God's chosen, the New Testament was written in, originally in the Greek language. It's the same word in Greek for those two words. So you read about elect being chosen. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing in Old Testament and, and New Testament. And this word right here is rich. And when we understand the depth and the value of this word, it should be incredibly encouraging to us. And some of you might be aware, some of you may not know, but some of you might be aware, this is a word that has sparked some debate. And debate is okay. When followers of Jesus, it's allowed. It's allowed for followers of Jesus to disagree over what they think biblical writers were trying to communicate by the things they said and the things they wrote. You know what's not okay? Nastiness unkindness, divisiveness. I love theology. I love theology. I love doctrine. It's incredibly important. I want you to love it. I want it to be important to you too. And I recognize, I know there's some of us who are like, I gotta say, I don't like, it sounds like gibberish, or I don't like it because it causes people to fight. If that's you, that's your attitude. If you're not a big fan of it, I'm just, hang with me today, okay? And if you're thinking, Rick, I love this. All right, good, I'm glad. You're gonna love it. So we're going to do a little Theology 101 today is we're going to focus on what this word means. And one of the things we got to acknowledge right off the bat is there are at least four major perspectives that frame how people think about what this word means and all the implications of it. There are more than four perspectives, but these four perspectives are what you find most common in churches today. The Calvinist perspective, Arminian, Wesleyan, and Provisionalist perspective on this word, elect. And whatever you think about what it means to be the elect of God, whatever you think of what it means to be chosen by God, you've probably heard pastors, you've probably been invested in by people who are coming from one of these four perspectives. Now, I've had the privilege of studying these over my education and my career. Let me tell you what I've discovered 
but it's true of these four perspectives. Every single one of them, every single group, has people who are smart, have people who love God, and have people who love His Word. And we could do two things today. We could talk about what these people disagree about, or we could focus on what everybody agrees about, what everybody would say, yeah, that's true. I think it would be to our advantage. I think it would be most encouraging for us to focus on what do we all rally around? What do we all understand as true? So that's what we're going, that's what we're going to do today, all right? Now, before we do that, I got to let you know something. I got to point something out. So if you're a note taker, get ready, write this down. If you want to understand what Peter means, don't turn to old theologians before you turn to the Old Testament. All right, don't go here first until you first go here. Peter uses vibrant imagery in his letter. He uses imagery, he uses metaphor, he uses concepts that he's drawing out of the Old Testament and explaining in his letter. And so for us to understand what he means, we gotta know the Old Testament. And there's nothing wrong with studying old theologians. I do, I think you should too. But we're going to be flat out wrong if we go to theologians from 16th century Europe before we first go to the Old Testament. If you want to know what Peter means, you got to read it. You got to know it. You got to treasure it. You got to understand it. And I know there are some of you who are thinking, Rick, that's the part of the Bible I skip over. If that's you, I want to introduce a resource to you today. It's called The Bible Project. You can go to bibleproject.com. There's a website. There's an app. If you've never checked it out before and you go there and you see a bunch of animated videos, don't think you're in the wrong space. It's not for kids. It's for you. And it's put together but some high-level scholarship. It's super accessible, very understandable. You're going to find videos. You're going to find a podcast. You're going to find reading plans, articles. You're going to find amazing things that will be helpful for you, that will be encouraging, brilliant resources to help you better understand the Old Testament. It's so, so valuable. Today, this is what we're doing. We're going to do a little Theology 101. We're going to explore what is it that we can all stand firm on, what it means to be encouraged by to be elect. Here's the first one, first observation. Election is more often about service than salvation. It's more often about this than this. And when we use the word salvation, salvation means, or to be saved means, to know Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to be forgiven by him. When you read the Bible from cover to cover, Old Testament, New Testament, you're going to find all kinds of instances where God elected people, where God chose people for a purpose, for some sort of service. And it's more often about service than about salvation. And if we confuse those things, if we confuse service and salvation, there are things that we're going to read in the Bible, we're going to be confused, and we're not going to know how to understand it. Let me give you one example. The Apostle Paul wrote something to encourage a young pastor named Timothy, and he wrote this, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And in the context of this passage, he was saying, I'll endure hardship, mistreatment, difficulty that I don't deserve for the benefit of other people so they can hear about the gospel. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus for the eternal glory. What does that mean? To take the Bible seriously means we have to take seriously the reality that some people are elect and not saved, that you're not in Christ. There are some people who are elect and they may never choose to trust in Jesus. So election is more often about service than salvation. Now Peter was writing to men and women who are followers of Jesus, who are in Jesus. And he's saying your election, he wants to connect it to purpose as well for them. 
First Peter 2, he says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He's working in you with a purpose to be obedient to Jesus Christ. You have a God-given identity and you have a God-given purpose. Here's observation number two, theology 101. If you are in the elected one, you are one of the elect. And that may not make sense yet, hang with me. If you are in the elected one, you are one of the elect. How many of you have ever seen the show, The Chosen, or you know about the show, The Chosen? You guys know what I'm talking about? Do you know why it's called The Chosen? Because Jesus is the chosen one. From a biblical perspective, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus is the chosen one of God. Jesus is the elected one of God. Let's go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, 1, writing a prophecy about Jesus. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. From a biblical perspective, Jesus is the chosen one, the elected one of God. Now here's something else from a biblical perspective. When we trust in Jesus, when we put our allegiance in Jesus, when we put our faith on him, that God sees us as being in Jesus. Check this out, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin, he's talking about Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become, in him we might become the righteousness of God. From a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, when we trust in Jesus, we are in him, and what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. Jesus' status becomes our status. Because Jesus is righteous. If we are in him, we're righteous. Jesus is holy. If we're in him, guess what? We're holy. Jesus is the heir to the throne of God. And if we are in him, what are we? We are heirs. Jesus is the chosen one, the elected one of God. If we are in him, we are chosen. We are the elect of God. This is the last observation. Before you wanted God, he wanted you. You are not an afterthought. God did not settle for you. Before you wanted him, he wanted you. How many of you, who's throwing a Super Bowl party? Anybody? You don't want me to come? Is that why you're keep, keeping it on the... <laughs> noted, noted. Who likes throwing parties? Who likes having people over there? All right, have you ever, have you ever, you're throwing a party, you're having a, something, a social gathering that you don't want me to know about. You got this, you got a social gathering coming and there's that one person, there's that one person, you don't want them to know and then they find out and you're like, ah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, come on over. You guys know what I'm talking about? Who's ever been that person? It is never that way between God and you. God never settles for you. It wasn't as though he wanted somebody else to come and he was like, yeah, you can come too. He wanted you. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He looked forward into human history and he wanted you. He looked forward into human history and he smiled on you. And he set his affection on you. You are not the leftovers. Before you wanted God, he wanted you. And it's here that we see more imagery that Peter is using, and he's drawing it out of the Old Testament. If we don't treasure the Old Testament, if we don't know it, we're going to miss out on it. 
says to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. In Old Testament times, priests would conduct a sacrifice. They'd sacrifice a lamb. And they would take the blood from that sacrifice and they would go around the tabernacle or the temple and they would sprinkle the altar with the blood of the sacrifice. They'd sprinkle areas around the tabernacle and the temple with the blood of that sacrifice. And in our culture, in our day and age, that seems so out of place. But I want you to be able to see the power and the significance of that symbolism. From a biblical perspective, sin equals death. And blood represents life. And when a priest would do that, it showed this, that death was being overcome by life. That death and sin were swallowed up and overcome by life. And how was it accomplished? Through a sacrifice. And that's what the cross is about. That Jesus gave his life and shed his blood to cover our sin and to cover death and to give us new life through his sacrifice. And when we see that and we remember that, it should give us courage to stand firm on that and to stand fast in it. And sometimes when we have these kind of conversations and we're trying to wrap our minds around complex things, I, I wanted Jesus and I chose Jesus, but before I ever knew about him, he wanted me and chose me. And how does all of that work? And sometimes that can spark a question that feels scary to some people. And this is the question, does God really want everyone? And I'm just gonna let Jesus answer this question. And we're gonna turn to what might be the most famous passage in all of the Bible, John chapter three, for God so loved who? The world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What more could Jesus do to convince you that there is no price too high for him to pay to love you, to forgive you, to accept you, to transform you, to make you his own special possession? What could I say that would shine brighter than the cross? What could I say, what could I do that would be more compelling than Jesus gladly sacrificing his life for you and for me and for all who would trust in him? And so if you're here today and you're trying to figure out Jesus and Christians and you don't know where you stand with all of this, I am asking you, would you look and see at what he did and how much he loves you? And if you are a follower of Jesus, would you look at it? Would you remember what he did and how much he loves you? That today, together, we get to behold, we get to look at Jesus. And the last thing I want to give you as we try to do that together is this. Jesus was both the elected one and the ultimate exile. He's the elected one, and we've seen that already. He's also the ultimate exile. Peter started off his letter saying, to God's elect, exiled. I don't know, um, I don't know anybody who really loves talking about sin. Um, maybe it's easier when we talk about you know, sin in an impersonal way, in an abstract way. If we're talking about somebody else's sin, that can be fun. Um, but I don't know anybody who like, loves talking about their own sin, especially in front of other people. 
And if you're not a super churchy person, a religious person, this might be the point where you think I'm about to get judgmental and, and condemning, have no interest in doing that. Chances are you're probably a better person than me. You might have a view on what's right and wrong. It might be different from my view of what's right and wrong. But you know what I've discovered in life? I have every person I've ever talked to about this. No one says that they've perfectly lived up to their own standard. I've never met anyone who would dare to say out loud, I'm morally perfect. As a matter of fact, every person I've ever talked to about this, they would say, you know what, there have been real things that I've done. There have been some broken moral choices that I've done that have a real and negative impact on relationships that are important to me. If we had time and if we felt safe enough to do so, I bet we could tell heartbreaking stories about how our choices or the choices of somebody else had devastating impact on relationships that were important to us. And there's a word that biblical writers use to describe those kinds of choices, those kinds of decisions. And that word is sin. And like I mentioned before, over and over and over again throughout the Bible, sin is always tied to, connected to, equated with, with death. And if we get super honest with ourselves, we could probably say, oh yeah, I could tell you about how my choices or somebody else's choices, it leads to a real kind of death. But the worst kind of death, the worst kind of death that comes from sin is it kills our ability to know God, to please him, and to be close to him. And that's why Jesus came. That's why God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was glad to be the chosen one, the elected one, to take on humanity and to give his life as a payment and a sacrifice for sin. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was exiled so that we could be included. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was shamed so that we could be honored. He was condemned so that we could be forgiven and set free. He is the elected one, and he is the ultimate exile. 